Well, I mean, some people would just say, I just have to decide for myself what it is I want to do and then go do it and say no to the rest. This is Nobel Prize Conversations. And that was 2018 Physics Laureate Donna Strickland on balancing her roles as a research scientist and Nobel Laureate. Do I use this platform because I've been given it to use the opinions that I've had? Or do I just go back into my shell where I'm very comfortable and just go back in my lap? The Canadian physicist Donna Strickland was awarded the 2018 Nobel Prize in Physics together with Shahad Moru for her work with Chirped Pulse Amplification, or CPA. This method of making ultra-short, high-intensity laser pulses was developed for use in fundamental research, but is now also used in applications such as eye surgery and cancer treatments. Nobel Prize Conversations is produced with the support of our Nobel International Partners, 3M, ABB, Ericsson and Scania. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. As a child, Donna Strickland loved school and set her heart on doing a PhD before she even really knew what that was. The path lay before her and she just needed to move along it or meander along it, as she says. Let's hear our conversation with Donna Strickland about doing what you love and how a lovely thing like the Nobel Prize can take you out of your comfort zone. At the beginning of your biography that you wrote for the Nobel Foundation, you talk about this newspaper that your father bought on the day of your birth and this amazingly striking image in the newspaper of the graduating class of engineering students from the University of Toronto with 450 students and in the middle of them, one female graduate, just the first. Um, <laughs> and it, it is it is striking. It's obviously in a way representative of the situation you find yourself in where you have been absolutely thrust into the limelight as a role model, a sort of poster child for a female scientist by the award of the Nobel Prize. And I just wondered whether that was a role you ever wanted. No, I did not want this role at all. It's a sort of a sad statement that after 60 years, right, I'm 60 years old. And so they made a big deal about it in 1959 and we're still seemingly making a big deal of it. I do always want to point out, though, that it's we have improved a yeah. lot, right? Uh, back then, they refused to call her a woman in the article. Uh, she was, I don't know, the princess, so she was the, I don't know, they, they referred to her as a girl, they referred to her in many ways, um, but it was the men and the girl, or the man with her princess, or men, you know. So I don't think we do that anymore, you know, and there were others, uh, Nobel Prize winners, the other women, when uh, Maria Gopet Mayer won 55 years before me, there was, uh, her headline was San Diego Mom wins the Nobel Prize. Like somehow we had to always make sure that women were seen as wives and mothers before we could be anything else. And that did not happen with me, right? So I think we are making progress, but I was quite surprised since I've never in my career thought about being, that it was so special to be a woman. And so, yes, I've, I have been a little surprised. And I have nothing to say about it because I just went through maybe with blinders on and not thinking about it, that I don't have any 
well thought out ideas to talk about. But it, it's interesting that um, that it never sort of it's never struck you as a particular issue throughout your career. Obviously, it is a huge issue for so many people in science. Do you have any reflection? Have you had the chance to reflect on why it wasn't an issue for you? Well, I mean, I've talked about this a lot too. I think it was growing up with a mother who kept saying, I wish I had stuck to my guns. I would have been a really good math teacher. I wanted to do math. I was good at math. You know, she pointed out she came from a small village and there were only, I think, eight or 12 people. I can't remember. But that kind of number in her grade 13 class, we had grade 13 in Ontario. And so they had to choose. They had to all agree what eight subjects they would take. And she fought with this one other man to make sure all three maths were there so that she could go on and study math at university. And then she pointed out neither the man or her ended up going into math, even though she said other people struggled with three maths. (laughs) um, But she was convinced, no, as a woman, she shouldn't do it. So I think I grew up with this woman saying, this is ridiculous, Donna. Do what you want. Don't let anybody else say it. Uh, and, and I grew up in the seventies and we were told by Gloria Steinem, we were told by everybody, women, you can do what you want. And so, and then the alternative, the other side of it was the fact that I really was only good at math and physics. And I was a girl good at math and physics. Ergo, girls can do math and physics. It is, it wasn't something I had to think about. It just, it was a fact for me. So, you know, that's, I was surprised always when there weren't other women and I didn't understand why other women didn't do it. But I personally didn't think I didn't belong because I was good at math and physics. And you've never felt that anything has stood in your way because you were a woman? Not that I can tell. I mean, I think it put me in a special category, right? I think there were times when people were looking at me differently than others, but I don't feel that I ever um, got a job because of it. I don't think I ever got denied a job because of it. I also think, and and it has been pointed out to me, and it's probably true, because I was a very good student, people overlooked that I was a woman, if if there was a problem, right? The very first research job I had, I was told that he had said just a few months before hiring me that he would never hire a girl to work in the lab. It would be nothing but trouble. Two months later, I asked to work for him, and he hires me. I think personally, it's because he had a 16-year-old daughter at the time, and it was starting to strike him that... She was smart and shouldn't be stopped. But also, I think I do have the advantage that because I was a very strong student, people didn't care that I was a woman. I've heard other people say that it was more, you know, people that are maybe lower down on the edge, the men are encouraged to become engineers because it's a good paying job. Whereas a woman at that same level, which was good enough to get in, would be told, you're not really good enough, right? So, so it's hard, you know, harder for me to relate to everybody because, again, being near the top of my class, people didn't care that I was a woman. I mean, a lot of people focus on the disparities, for instance, in the Nobel Prize, where, yes, you were the first um, female to be awarded the physics prize for 55 years, and still the, um, uh, the number of women receiving the prize is, is very small. Um, if, I mean, things are getting better, perhaps, which is nice, but still in the last five years, I think it's only one in, it's less than one in six is a female uh, of laureates. Um, I mean, so people look at these um, th- these tallies 
and see that things are not right. Do you do that as well? Do you look at your colleagues at a conference and say, hang on, this distribution of genders doesn't look right? Yes. I have to say, I've probably felt guilty over the years knowing that other women are taking on the charge. And to me, I'm just not a social activist, I guess. And so I haven't taken on the charge that other people have done. Um, And yeah, I probably haven't noticed. I think you probably notice when it does happen. If a woman does win, then you notice it. You know, and I said early on that uh, with the Nobel Prizes, women didn't win, so I wasn't noticing that. But when a Canadian won, I would notice it. I didn't notice it the years when Canadian didn't win and I didn't say, oh my goodness, a Canadian should have won. I just, I notice when when the rare thing happens as opposed to when it doesn't. Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, so I didn't. But I think it's mostly that I'm just not one of these socially conscious people. So you're very much in the limelight and you hadn't expected to be there. You hadn't chosen to be there. How is it? Because you must be bombarded all the time by people like me um, wanting you to talk. Yes, and I find it odd. And I find it odd that my job has changed so drastically. I will hopefully someday change it back uh, because right now, yes, I'm writing a speech to give, you know, on uh, Women and Girls Day in Science Women and Girls in Science Day. And as I said, this is not where I saw myself. And also I don't like writing. So writing speeches is not my thing either, but there you go. And it's also uh, people ask my opinion about things. And I, I keep thinking, well, if, if I got the Nobel Prize for something I did 35 years ago, it, it surely it is what I did 35 years ago that is important. But people weren't wanting my opinion for these past 35 years. And now all of a sudden, because the Royal Swedish Academy sort of put this halo on me, now people want my opinion. And so I find it a very odd thing. And I remember once being asked uh, by a young uh, woman, a girl, uh, about the imposter syndrome. And I felt like saying it, but I didn't. Do you mean like right now? Because I did feel like an imposter. I, I kept thinking, why all of a sudden do you care what I think or say? And yet probably... Uh, by the same token, I have probably listened to Nobel Prize winners thinking they must be special people too. So, I mean, I understand it, but it's hard to wrap your head around. Gosh, yes. I mean, yes. And, and it's, of course, the hardest thing in the world to say, I don't know, or um, I haven't thought about that. or um, I... But I do say that a lot. <laughs> Well, then good good for you, but it is difficult, isn't it? Or maybe it's not for you. It is difficult. It's difficult because people are now looking. You know, this time when I was being asked about the imposter syndrome, I was sitting in front of a crowd. This was not a Zoom call. This was, And so you, are, you can't just sit there and say nothing about it. So, And it's also not like I thought I didn't have opinions about things. It was just people didn't care, and so I didn't have the platform. I also speak just off the cuff, and so I have to be really careful now, right? Because... We live in this world where everything is watched, how we say it and what we say, and words have so many meanings that I am also somewhat uh, scared that what I say could be misconstrued. Mm. And so, uh, you know, but yes, I, I have opinions and so I say them, but it still boggles my mind that people other than my family and friends care what my opinion is. So how do you think you might, as you put it, get back to normal? Well, I mean, some people would just say, I just have to decide for myself what it is I want to do 
and then go do it and say no to the rest. And so it, the question then in my head is, um, what do I want to do? And because as you say, I now have been given a platform. So I have to really think about, do I use this platform because I've been given it, it to use the opinions that I've had? Or do I just go back into my shell where I'm very comfortable and just go back in my lab? Right now, I'm not allowed in my lab, really. So that's sort of been taken away from me. That's a different topic and a reflection of the times we live in now. But let's just touch on that. Um, so at the moment, research is pretty much shut down at the University of Waterloo. Uh, most of it, but my students can go in and they're choosing to go in one at a time to be as safe as possible. But it's, you know, they're young, they're, they're new students. My senior student is at home in a different city writing his thesis. So uh, they're sort of in there somewhat blind. I talk to them sometimes, you know, over a Zoom call while they're in there to try to help it out a bit. But even I'm blind because the we took down all the lasers and started fresh since I've won the Nobel Prize. And uh, a, a previous student has set it up while I've been away. And so I'm somewhat blind. This is the first time I can't tweak the laser as well as the students can all the other lasers I probably built and showed the students how to build. Mm. And so we're in this awkward situation where it's a new type of laser for me. It was built uh, by Frank Wise's group at Cornell. It's been brought to my thing just a few months before COVID. You know, we shut down for several months. They went back in. It's not working right. <laughs> it's like going, hmm, I could, you know, and, and I help in the general sense, but I've lost the specific ability to just to go in uh, before this, before the Nobel I would have gone in and I could make all my lasers work. And I really had a good feel for how the experiments worked and all this. So it's all sort of between my travel and COVID and brand new students. And it's a struggle. Right wow. Now. Yes, because that's a huge transition from being from being ultimately able to tinker in the lab to having to think twice before you you, know, yeah, you adjust something. Yes. Gosh, it's all come together for you, hasn't it? It really Yes. <laughs> And it's also, but on the other hand, I will tell you, certainly sitting in my dining room all these months, I am itching to be in the lab. I would like to learn how to tweak this laser myself. Uh, and so no other students can come into my lab and not get better advice from me. And just to you know, watch it all get going again. That's what we're all itching to do. So and when I can do that, hopefully, I sort of stop from just giving the Nobel talk and, and this kind of thing. On the other hand, I had what's scheduled to speak almost nonstop in 2020. And those have been pushed into 2022 and into 2023 now, mm. and, and starting the fall of 2021, if we can. But now, it's, so then it's just almost back nonstop traveling and, and giving the talk. So I'll do that, I guess, up until 2023, <laughs> which seems ridiculous to me now. Um, but after that, I really have to stop. But I am thinking about, um, talking about science literacy, that's very important to me. And I have now this platform. And I also started this other public policy part about just trying to do measurement for environmental measurement monitoring and using photonics for that. And so I feel I've got these platforms and I want to use the platforms for those two things. Mm. But other than those two things, that's what I want the Nobel to help me with. And then I want to get back in my lab. Donna Strickland had an early interest in lasers and electro-optics. In the 1980s, while pursuing her PhD at the University of Rochester in the US, she and her supervisor, Gerard Moreau, found a novel way to create high-intensity laser pulses. 
This was the CPA technique, which she described in her first published scientific paper in 1989, the paper that later netted them the Nobel Prize. So let's hear about a time of crazy hours in the lab and how she not once, but twice considered quitting the programme. What was it like at that moment? Were you just working all the time because you knew it was just such an exciting thing to be doing? Combination of that and, and having a supervisor that expected <laughs> you to be there all the time, right? But, but it, there was a combination of these things. Yes, uh, Gerard wanted us there all the time. Uh, I remember Gerard calling me at 7.30 on a Saturday morning wondering where I was. So it was expected. Now I, I think there's, uh, students are, are much more, we have to be careful about what we really request of our students. So there was that, but of course all the other students were there. So there was a buzz and, and everybody was feeling like they were moving forward. And so you didn't want to be sort of left behind. So that, that's sort of the feeling that you had. But there was a nice camaraderie in Gerard's group. We really, I think we were a group that, uh, for the most part, got along very well and, uh, and helped each other. Um, and we, we have to talk about this extraordinary thing that your first published paper, CPA, was indeed the paper that got you the Nobel Prize um, some, sometime later, 33 years later, was it? But I wasn't a young student. Some people think that meant it was in my first year and it wasn't anywhere close to my first year. I had a lot of roads that I went down that weren't even publishable. That's why it's the first paper. I see. So I was going to ask, because um, funny to reflect on the fact that, so your first paper got you a Nobel Prize, but it took you quite a while to get your PhD. Oh, that's true. That's because I, uh, well, two things. One, uh, the average year was seven years at Rochester at the time. But also, it had been my life's goal to get a PhD. And so for the first three years of my PhD, when people would say, what are you going to do next? I went, I don't know. This is my whole life's goal is to get this PhD. I said, I'm in no hurry to finish it because then I don't know, I've reached my life's goal and I'll have to find something new to do. So it wasn't a thing that I wanted to be this kind of scientist or I, it was, you know, I had knew I belonged in school and wanted to get a PhD. So I didn't mind staying there for quite some time. How very sensible, because, you know, when one gets older, one just longs to be back in school. It was realising how much fun it was. <laughs> exactly. So what made it your life skill? How come that was the goal? I don't know. I th like you said, I was a nerdy little kid and I, I enjoyed school. I thought, you know, it was fun to try the exercises or what have you. But and I was one of those awful kids that, you know, were perfectly happy to have summer vacation over and going back to school. And I remember just hearing from a friend walking to school one day that his older brother was going to go for his PhD. And I asked what it was. Now, I don't quite remember the conversation because I doubt this child used the word, it's the ultimate in education. But whatever words as a young person would use, that's the feeling I got. And I went, oh, well, then if that's the ultimate in education and I love school, then I will get, without even knowing what it was. And so that was, that was just in my heart and soul from that time on, I would get a PhD. Before I even knew what it was, I, I knew I belonged. Gosh, how lovely. To, again, um, so often um, in the stories told by laureates, there's this kind of revelation of some sort, very young, that then just propels them in one direction. And of course, there are other examples where people change direction. But it's, I mean, although yours was kind of amorphous, it is nice to have something that just sets you on your track and there you are, you're off. Yes, I... And also, as I say, I'm not good at many things. And so I didn't have to pick and choose, right? I've had friends who 
at the end of undergrad, they got accepted both to law school and into um, grad school for physics. And, and they had to choose. I'm going, wow, I can't imagine being good at so many things and then having to make these choices. Then you have to take, you know, the fork in the road. And, and I haven't really had that many forks in the road. It's just been me meandering down my path. So when you're teaching and you have people coming to you saying, I want to make a career in physics... Do you just say, well, if that's what your passion is, go for it? Or do you have some other kind of formula that helps them decide whether, they're, whether they've got what it takes, the fire inside or whatever? Well, if they say they want to do physics, I let them think they want to do physics. So who am I to say that they do or don't? Uh, so, so that's fine. I've had people since winning the Nobel Prize ask me how to pick the physics that will be successful. And I find that question totally wrong. Minded, and I will point that out too. That that's not how to pick your topic. I think you have to pick a topic that you really want to work on because that's how you really work hard at it, right? I think if you're trying to play some game about I want to be successful, so I'll pick what I think is successful. It's very hard to pick the winners. You know, this is why betting doesn't usually work in the end. Right? So um, now I just recently on on a question and answer had the question. I really love physics. Uh, but when it comes to the tests, I don't do well, right? What, what am I doing wrong? And again, I have to uh, point this out. And uh, uh, people who think I'm a good teacher are the ones who hear my public talk. The people that get taught by me don't necessarily think I'm a great teacher because it's two totally different things, right? In the public talk, you're just um, giving the story of what it is. The details are gone. There's no details there, right? There's no time for the details, but also there are so many that build up through the years that you had to study, you can't teach those details. When you teach in a class and what a student must know is how to put those details together and, and write the story from scratch to finish on their own. And when you hear it, physics, it thinks, oh, it makes sense, it makes sense, it makes sense. But physics is the, one of the subjects that, that is not a gut reaction thing, right? It's where your intuition will let you down. And so Newtonian mechanics is not the way we understand things as we're growing up, right? We think that we have to keep pushing ourselves to keep moving. And Newtonian mechanics will tell you, no, if there's no forces on you and you are moving, you will keep moving. And so while you look at the problem, your gut is telling you one thing and Newtonian mechanics is telling you something else. And we have to get over that hurdle of, of you know, getting our head to not listen to our gut. And that requires us trying to do things on our own. You know, as teachers, we can make it all understandable. The students are sitting there going, yeah, 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 that makes sense. And then they try it themselves. And when I tried it myself, I'd go, oh, 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 what, what's going on? Right? And so you really have to get your brain uh, sort of rewired to, to think that in, the, in Newtonian mechanics. And then once you've really got Newtonian mechanics, then you all of a sudden are told, no, that works only to a point. You have to get in with Einstein here and all the other quantum people and just start going with quantum, which is another sort of leap of faith um, and rewiring the way your brain works again, which just requires a lot of work, a lot of puzzle doing. Yeah. And you got to be ready to do that. And so what I'm hearing is that physics is for the adventurous, really. <laughs> right. Well, or, or a puzzle solver or somebody. Yes. And again, you have to do it by yourself, but I also say it's still a team sport because we all learn in different ways. And so you have to figure out what part you're not getting and you have to really figure out what part you're not and then ask the question of the prof or your colleagues or whatever and do it. And this is how scientists do it. Scientists don't know what they're doing. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it, right? Science is about trying to break down a barrier and go, why is it working this way? I don't know. 
Um, but again, you try to figure it out, then you have conversations about it, and you hope that that sparks something. Has there ever been a moment when you've had a sort of um, a wavering of purpose, when you've thought, hang on a second, I'm not enjoying this anymore, I'll do something else? I considered quitting twice during my PhD, and one of the times was after I'd done CPA. So I'd even been highly successful, right? I mean, right out of the gate, I gave a post-deadline paper first, but after that, I just gave invited talks as, an, as a grad student, because it was a big deal. Um, and even then, I considered quitting. Uh, so no, I have that. I have to say, I say I'm not driven, but I will tell you that because I guess I was dreaming about my PhD all my life, I did go to my PhD saying, I am going to do one of the world's best PhDs. <laughs> so that also probably is what kept me in the lab all those hours. That, I will say that was the one time because it was my one big thing always. I wanted to do one of the world's best PhDs. Um, <laughs> and luckily I did. You know, those first few years, I was wondering how it was going to happen. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, what was your question? I've already I went off topic, didn't I? No, not not at all. It's all everything. That's the nice thing about these conversations. Everything's on topic. Um, no, it's just about whether you'd ever had any kind of self doubt about, or not self doubt. Sorry, that's wrong. It's yes. it's about it's about doubt about whether you're whether you want to go on doing this. That's um, right. So when I, so and I do tell this story, and I I then I found out that somebody use that story to go ahead and actually uh, drop out of grad school. So now I'm wondering if I should keep telling the story. Uh, but uh, the one time I came home, and it was the second time I was considering quitting, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I came all the way home to Guelph, my hometown. And probably everybody was at work. It might have been during one of the American holidays. Can't remember. Anyways, I just turned on the TV. And it was a documentary about the National Ballets, our Canadian National Ballet School. And it was, they had... I don't know, ballet teacher, or I don't know what they're called there, but, uh, and she was saying, I say to every incoming first class, if you can imagine doing anything else, go do it, because you will not stick with this. This is so hard. And I thought, wow, every PhD student should be told that. Uh, and then I say it at graduation speeches that I've given, because I said, probably regardless of what you're aiming for, if it's something you're really wanting to do, it's probably challenging. And so you better know you really want to do it. And so then I sat there and went, all right, what else could I do? Or what else do I want to do? And I went, mm, mm, nope, nothing. So I just, <laughs> I just thought, okay, daughter, you got to buck up and uh, go back and just, and just do it. So I went back and I just did it. I suppose it, it's great advice and it works perfectly as long as you've already been switched on. I suppose there are people who do switch on late and they just go through the motions for a while and then suddenly the fire begins to build. That's, that's right. And, you know, and again, because I think I did meander through life. This is why it's hard for me to give advice. I think it's hard for anyone to give advice. Because, A, what works for my personality isn't necessarily what's going to work for somebody else's personality. And, you know, life has just worked out for me. Uh, even I've heard a lot of women say, oh, you can't get off the academic track. I shouldn't have a baby now. I can't get off the academic track. And yet, at some point, it wasn't working for me to live in California with my hus new husband living in New Jersey. And so I said, to heck with it, you know, and possibly because I got my PhD and I'd had the best postdoc. Uh, and I just thought that is the ultimate. It's, I still think that's the ultimate job. And maybe just because I had the ultimate supervisor. I don't know. But all you do is science, right? You're not writing research grants. You're not teaching classes. You're not marking 
you're not doing it. You're just doing science. It's just fabulous. Um, I thought, well, I've had my PhD and I had this fabulous postdoc. I give up. I'll, I'll just take a job and uh, actually live with my husband and have the babies. And it turned out that, although I hate to complain uh, because it wasn't a horrible thing for me, I was one of those women that were sick, morning sickness, only morning, noon and night for the entire nine months. And it was very hard. I spent a lot of the time in the sick room. And I remember when I then became a professor and was teaching, I thought, oh my goodness, I could not have done this job that sick because I would have been constantly running out of the room <laughs> to go be sick, right? And so I thought, isn't that amazing how life worked out for me? Because I was a member of technical staff during these two pregnancies and I worked with a, uh, in a bunch of different departments. And I actually remember telling my immediate supervisor what, the first time I was pregnant, I said, you may have noticed that I've hardly been around because I've been in the sick room so much. And he said, no, if you're not here, I assume you're an engineer. And I went, that is the beauty of this job because when I'm not there, they think I'm here. And mostly I've just been in the sick room. So, so, you know, it just took to me, it worked out to be the perfect job for that moment of my life. So So I really do feel like I've just been blessed or lucky or whatever, you know, and then I got to go on and possibly again because of CPA I did still get to have a faculty job even though I had spent five years as a technician right Um, and so I went well off the academic track and still bounced back so I don't believe you can't do it so I don't think women should ever be scared of that or men you know Um, but it may be harder to get back I don't know okay uh, just to finish you work with lasers and you wear glasses and um, I've heard it said that you're completely opposed to the idea of laser surgery. So if that's true, explain. <laughs> I'm, I'm just against surgery. I mean, even if it wasn't done with lasers, I would rather wear glasses than uh, have surgery on my eyes. I think if I was completely blind, right? Obviously, I'm watching you right now. With, I can't look close through glasses, which is why when I'm, when I'm, when I'm on the computer, my glasses sit down beside me. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I'm just a very squeamish person. So uh, I just don't like to go to a doctor or a hospital if, unless I absolutely have to. So, I mean, it's not that if I had the choice of the sur- I must do surgery and they could use a scalpel or a laser, I'll trust the laser over the scalpel. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't want surgery if I don't, if I don't need it. It makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> I'd be the same. Thank you so very much indeed. It's been a huge pleasure speaking. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. You've just heard Nobel Prize Conversations, a podcast series with Adam Smith by Filt for Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Sally Henriksen, and I'm Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. This episode is from season two of the show. You can find previous seasons and conversations on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. 
We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms. 